This podcast is funded by Ted Dintersmith, the executive producer of the acclaimed film Most Likely to Succeed, and the author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Hey everyone, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. I am your host, Josh Rapoon. Before we start the show, please check out all the resources at whatschoolcouldbe.org and our global online community. Simply install the What School Could Be app on your mobile device or navigate to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org. I hope to see you there. Before I introduce today's guests, I want to introduce EL Education. EL Education is a national nonprofit partnering with K-12 educators to transform diverse public schools into hubs of opportunity for all students to achieve excellent, equitable outcomes. It is guided by a shared belief in student potential, by a reimagined definition of student achievement, and by research-proven resources and practices, including the acclaimed EL Education K-8 Language Arts Curriculum. EL Education is a national nonprofit partnering with K-12 educators to transform diverse public schools into hubs of opportunity for all students to achieve excellent, equitable outcomes. It is guided by a shared belief in student potential, by a reimagined definition of student achievement, and by research-proven resources and practices, including the acclaimed EL Education K-8 Language Arts Curriculum, Core Practices, and Aligned Professional Learning. EL Education was born out of a collaboration between the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Outward Bound USA. What started as a concept has grown into a movement. Its mission is to create classrooms where teachers can fulfill their highest aspirations and students achieve more than they think possible, becoming active contributors to building a better world. In its core DNA, EL Education is all about this one question. What if school served a higher purpose? Over the last 10 years, EL Education has received hundreds of nominations for its annual EL Education Educator Awards. Each of these nominations is a deep acknowledgement of and heartfelt appreciation for the extraordinary efforts these teachers and school leaders put forth daily, a nod to the magnificent minds striving to bring to life EL Education's shared vision for educational excellence. The 2022 pool of nominees was filled with creative and innovative educators, teachers who empower students to become creative agents of their own learning, school leaders dedicated to making data-driven decisions that propel positive cultural changes in their schools, educators actively imagining public education so that all children have the chance to develop socially, emotionally, and academically to become active contributors to a better world. My first exposure to EL education was through the work of Ron Berger, who, for many of us, sits in the pantheon of progressive education leaders. He is definitely a superhero to me. I am thrilled to have as my guests today 
the two winners of the 2022 EL Education Educator Award, Annie Smith and Tom Rockowitz. Annie Smith was a kindergarten teacher at Polaris Charter School in Chicago, Illinois, and the recipient of the 2022 Klingenstein Teacher Award. She is now the primary instructional coach at Polaris. EL Education notes that, quote, Annie's kindergarten classroom is centered on rigor, joy, and the characteristics of primary learners. Her ability to meet each student where they are is her superpower, end quote. In 2022, Tom Rockowitz was the principal at Wheels, a New York City outward bound school and the recipient of the 2022 Silverberg Leadership Award and the Teach for America National Teaching Award in 2014. In 2022, Tom Rockowitz was the principal at Wheels, a New York City Outward Bound School, and the recipient of the 2022 Silverberg Leadership Award, and the Teach for America National Teaching Award in 2014. Tom is now the New York City Public Schools Consortium Internationals and Outward Bound District Deputy Superintendent. EL Education noted that, quote, Tom does not just talk the talk, he walks the walk. He is a constant presence in the classroom, stopping by to leave a positive note of encouragement, attend the presentations of learning, and dropping in to do read-alouds with students, end quote. And now, here's my conversation with Annie Smith and Tom Rockowitz. Tom and Annie, welcome to the What School Could Be podcast. It's so great to be here with you both. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today. I'm really excited to have the two of you on the show today. So, Annie, you shared with me some parts of your background, both inside and outside of this thing we call school. And I'm going to quote at length something you wrote, and then we can talk about it. So, quote, I remember in high school, in an AP English class, sitting in an intense discussion about world religions. And I remember not doing so well in the class, maybe I received a B, but hearing other people's viewpoints and comparing them to my own and being challenged and having to defend my thinking, which caused me to actually examine my own beliefs. And I remember thinking, wow, this is exciting. End quote. So, Annie, my research led me to the conclusion that Annie Smith is all about doing and all about becoming. And it feels to me like you've been doing and becoming all your life. So how was this moment way back in AP English a waypoint on your lifelong voyage of doing and becoming? Like, what were you doing and what were you becoming way back then in that moment? I think that that moment actually kind of awakened me to become a person and not just somebody who just does what they're told all the time. I never had a reason to challenge my beliefs before that moment. So it was kind of the starting point for me. And it was exciting because it showed that I could change what I thought. I could learn from others. It ignited this love of 
travel and learning about other cultures and about other people. And it started me thinking about how what I had been told or what I'd been asked to do my whole life wasn't all that was there. There was so much more out there. So I wanted to do everything. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to meet people, hear different viewpoints. Mm. And slowly, 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 step by step, I've kind of become the person I am today who I think has a much bigger world view. And I'm definitely not done. I would say I'm still just on the starting point of that, but it's just ignited that excitement in me mm. that wasn't there before. Mm, that's awesome. Do you recall that there was a particular format, Annie, to that discussion or all of the discussions that were happening in that AP English class? Was there something in particular about the way the, the discussion was sort of constructed and was being moderated that made it feel like your voice could count and that you could really listen to other people's voices and and hear what they were saying and, and figure out who they are and what sort of doing and becoming they were? I think our teacher did a fantastic job of sitting back and mm. letting us know that it wasn't his voice that was important. It mm. was ours. Yeah. And I remember sitting in awkward silence for a lot of the beginning <laughs> of the class. Yes. And he wouldn't talk at all. And he would just wait until somebody else would. And at the beginning of the class, it made me feel extremely uncomfortable because it was like this pressure. I need to say something. Mm. But it kind of made us, I think, all as a class feel comfortable with just waiting and listening, processing, and then sharing what we had learned or what we were thinking at that time. So it was kind of more of a, a hands-off, I trust you guys to get there by yourselves approach. Mm. And you felt like your AP English teacher was being intentional about all of this? This was this doesn't sound like somebody just sort of casually, let's have a discussion. This sounds pretty carefully constructed and intentional. Is that a fair way of looking at it? Yes, definitely. He was extremely, extremely intentional with that. Yeah, yeah. That's it's so awesome, Annie. I I taught history for seventeen years, Hawaiian studies, economics, U.S. history, American history, and the whole time, all that, all of those seventeen years, Annie, I was also in a process of of doing and becoming. And I, I think what I was becoming is what you're describing here, which is that teacher who can step back. And let my voice not be the dominant one. In fact, not even there at all after, if you're really doing your job well. And letting the students gain the confidence that they needed to put their voices out into what we call the marketplace of ideas in my classroom, right? So it sounds like, you know, that was, as you said, an awakening moment. So that's fantastic. So Tom, back in 1999, I wrote my master's thesis on the history of the so-called service learning movement. And one thing that came up in my research is that Catholic schools were by and large leaders, predisposed, if you will, towards the deep relationship between learning and service. And so you grew up in Pennsylvania and attended two Catholic schools covering your K-12 years, I believe. So I wonder how your experiences, Tom, attending these two Catholic schools shaped you and what do you carry with you in your proverbial backpack as you go about being a deputy superintendent today that that harkens back to that time in those in those catholic school environments Josh that's such a great question <laughs> so i think a few things i think one you know being a product of catholic schools from k to 12 then also in my 
undergrad and grad, it's been interesting to sort of compare some of those experiences over time. I think really from K to 12, I think back to a lot of the outside of the classroom experiences I had from extracurriculars to leadership opportunities that were really about service. Mm. And that really, you know, even beyond the graduation requirements to actually saying like, this is part of my identity. This is part of what I believe. You know, this idea at Boston College when I went to undergrad, we talked a lot about men and women for others. Yeah. And I think, you know, I didn't plan to be a teacher. I didn't plan to come into education. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but it wasn't in the plans. But then when, you know, throughout these experiences of service, this sort of looking to be a part of something larger than myself, mm-hmm. you know, I found education and actually thought about that multiple times in that process because I, I tried to leave the classroom and just found, you know, I missed that sense of the collective, that sense of a common good and that sense of like a real purpose, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. There's everything I read, everything I still read sort of has a greater purpose toward wanting to bring it to my classroom, wanting to bring it to my staff, wanting to bring it to my own leadership journey. And so I think it was those pieces. I think it was less, you know, formal religion and more about a larger community and Mm. really contributing to a larger community. Mm. Tom, do you remember any specific experiences from that time where you really felt very clearly that you were part of something greater than yourself, part of a greater community that was, you know, trying to be or that was working on the greater good, if you will? You know, I think it was more, I saw that more in college when Mm. I started to be a part of, I, I was in student government throughout my middle school and high school experience, but it was, you know, sort of like a very traditional student government of, you know, going through the motions in some ways. Yeah. But then in student government in college, it became a real leadership opportunity. We fostered discussions between different folks and different identities and different backgrounds on a college campus, which, you know, always pushed me Mm. to think about how was it reflecting our community, pushing our community, bringing folks within our community into contact with each other. And so I think it was that student government experience that was really formative for me. You know, it started early, but I think it really took off in in some of the later years. You know, Tom, I'm feeling optimistic these days because I'm seeing, and I'm not sure if you're kind of picking up on the same thing, I'm, I'm sort of feeling and hearing and seeing a resurgence of conversations in the education communities about this notion of the purpose of school being to help kids understand that they're part of something greater than themselves. Mm. And I, I wonder now from your perch as a deputy superintendent in the New York City public schools that are you kind of sensing that? Are you feeling that? Is that, yeah, I wonder. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I mean, first, just to sort of acknowledge that the district I'm a part of and that I serve as schools with that as a deeply held belief, mm. sense of relevance, a sense of purpose. Projects have value beyond the classroom. There's authenticity, not just in the format of the work, you know, and this is all EL education, yeah. but it's also, you know, a key movement in New York City as well right now that we're a part of is like, it's answering the need in the community. There's an authentic audience, it's, you know, an authentic product. It's less, I'm doing work for the teacher that lives in these four walls. Yeah. But really, I'm, I'm, and you said this earlier, I'm entering a conversation, I'm entering a marketplace of ideas, yeah. and my work has value in that marketplace. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, Tom, and also Annie, 
I actually went out when I was a teacher about halfway through my career and I had a, I was teaching at a small all-girls school and really, really pushing the envelope in terms of Socratic discussions and open discussions. And I went to a local print shop and I had a banner printed that said the marketplace of ideas. It was huge. And I hung it up in my classroom. And even to this day, and this was a long time ago, there are two students, former students of mine, who are actually sharing that banner. Like every year they switch and send mm. it to each other. <laughs> and so it became the culture of the classroom, right? Everybody sort of just bought into the, the idea that all ideas mattered. And so anyway, Tom, I just, I love what you said about that. So Annie, this is a perfect segue back to you. And just thinking again, back to that awakening that you were talking about, I love the stories you shared with me about not getting a teaching job after you graduated from Butler University, which led you to search for and find an international school teaching job in Doha and Qatar in the Middle East. And there, something marvelous happened, which is that you found yourself free of micromanagement, if you will, and able to write the first chapter in the Book of Annie which is titled Chapter One. Annie goes to Cutter and starts to figure out the perfect learning environment. So in effect, you were being an educational science researcher running experiments focused on student engagement in your classroom. And I wonder, is this a fair way of looking at it, Annie? And what were some of the highlights of that experiment, if you will? And how did the trust of your students' parents figure into this story? Great question. I love that you called it chapter one of my story. I never thought it that way, but yeah, it's definitely that. I remember arriving and being terrified because <laughs> I didn't have the parameters that I had in college that said, this is what you should be teaching and when you should be teaching and how you should be teaching. Yeah. The first day we had like a meet the parent night and the classroom that I had been given was in an old, like a villa. And mm. it was probably as big as a bedroom. You could barely fit three tables in there. And the parents of the students in my school were very wealthy, very affluent. And they walked in and they looked at me and they're like, we're leaving. We're not going to stay in this school. This classroom is terrible. And I just remember being brought almost to tears because the year hadn't even started yet. And they were already so critical of me and of the environment. Mm -hmm. Luckily, there were no other schools available. And most of those parents <laughs> had to stay. Mm -hmm. And I thought, all right, I need to get the parents on my side and the kids on my side. How can I do that? And I was like, let's have fun. Let's bring joy. Mm. We sang, we danced, we painted. I gave the kids some freedom that they hadn't been given before. They were used to being told exactly what to do when. And I offered a lot of choice in my classroom. Mm. For example, instead of if we were going to paint, instead of giving them orange and black, if we were going to make pumpkins, I would give them the primary colors and they would have to mix colors themselves. And of course, it was a huge mess all the time. Mm. But the kids learned so much and they loved it. And I remember a parent coming in probably two or three months and he was like, 
like, I am so glad that we stayed in the class. My Mm -hmm. kid gets up so excited to be there. And it kind of just taught me like that the learning is important and the learning is going to happen if you give the kids space but let's bring the joy. Let's get the parents empowered. Let's get the kids empowered and everybody on the same team. And then that's when the learning can really begin. Wow. I love that, Annie. It's like, who said that a pumpkin or that whole thing has to be orange and black, right? <laughs> it's like, <Yeah. laughs> let's bust out of this whole thing. Annie, do you do you remember a particular moment that might be characterized as like a turning point when you felt like you had gotten them, you given them enough of that freedom to where now there was trust that was being built with the, with the young learners and that you were sort of, you were all embarking on a slightly new voyage together? I think it took a while to get off the ground. It was a lot of trial and error with what worked. I remember other teachers coming into my classroom and seeing that my students who were kindergarten age were already reading books and doing it independently Mm. and happily. Yeah. And they said, my kids aren't doing that yet. My kids can barely speak English. How are you doing that? And I thought, oh, I must be doing something differently. Let's figure out what am I doing differently and help these other teachers get their kids there too. Mm. Sometimes when you're stuck in your own room and stuck in your own mind, you don't really understand that you're doing things differently than other people might be doing, if that makes any sense. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And at some point, like, do you recall just like the end of that first year, what it felt like, how the classroom culture had changed? I remember crying my eyes out on the last day of school (laughs) (laughs) because I I was so attached to those kids. We built Mm. such a community in that classroom and it actually wasn't just the kids. It was the families as well. They had learned so much. They stayed at the school to continue on, which was a huge, a huge thing because a lot of kids would transfer, you know, if they didn't like what they were seeing. I think for me, that was just like, all right, we got this, I got this. And I went in the next year, like a lot more ready and prepared with how I was going to teach, what I was going to teach and what I was going to do. And I kind of continued on the same trajectory, the same five years I was there. And eventually other teachers would come into my room. Parents would come into my room to kind of observe and see. And the kids did well. Yeah, it wow. was great. That's awesome. I, I can imagine chapter two, you know, here we go. Now we've learned a lot <laughs> in chapter one. Let's take what we've learned in chapter one and let's figure out how to make chapter two even more amazing, right? That's awesome, Manny. Exactly. Yeah. So Tom, you shared with me that you are, and I quote, somewhere around 25% Teach for America and Uncommon Schools, EL education and New York City outward bound, and 5% high tech high. And I loved, loved reading this and immediately began thinking about the percentages of things that make up me, Josh Rapoon, you know, (laughs) what a fun exercise. So you also shared with me that you like a good jersey and a good playbook, which feels connected. So almost Mm. like running plays in football or passing plays or trick plays, If these percentages are identities, Tom, how have they and how do they continue to play out in your daily work? Mm, That's a great question. I think, you know, that percentage response was really thinking through my philosophy of education. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes back to, you know, wanting to be a part of something. I I think that instead of creating a, a new philosophy or a new vision, 
I really wanted to tap into different communities and different philosophies that already exist that I could be a part of, that I could join in and, you know, sort of lower my shoulder and push with as well in, in concert with others. And so, you know, I think it plays out probably, I feel it most daily when I think about the balance of, you know, some call it the balance of support and challenge, mm-hmm. some call it the, you know, the balance of relevance and high expectations. It, you know, I think we get caught up in philosophies. There's the student-centered movement, which is, you know, really trying to engage students and make things relevant. And then sometimes I've found when I bring up a question of challenge or rigor or standards or any any of those pieces, I think people sometimes are like, oh, we really focus on student-centered, which I love. Yeah. And then sometimes when I'm in with folks who, you know, sort of are from my previous charter experience or in other spaces, it's a lot about rigor and a lot about standards and, and expectations, which I also find valuable and necessary as well. And so I think for me, it's important to, you know, I try to bring in into my work, like balancing some of these pieces that are both necessary. It's really both end. It's not an either or. Mm. Um, and I think when I see schools that are really trying to really be student centered, they're also asking this question of not just what do my students want to do now, but also like, how is this going to prepare them for what they want to do in the future Mm. and who they want to be? And for me, you know, that has equity implications. It has just making sure that we're, we as educators are holding ourselves to high bar as well. Mm. And so, yeah, I think, you know, thinking about the Jersey, I think my Jersey would be a bit of a, a mix of those different communities, mm-hmm. but I think they're all necessary and I think can be mutually reinforcing to each other. Wow. That's so awesome, Tom. I'm just thinking what Annie just said about her year, first year in Cutter, that what you're really saying is we have to be able to make the right play in the right moment or in a particular moment. And that that play isn't, it's not a monolithic play. You're not going to call the running play every single time. You can't. You you can't win with your kids that way. You have to do other types of plays depending on context and situation, right? Does that yeah. does that sound like a fair way of looking at it? Yeah, and I think if we really are student-centered, it means we have to sometimes, you know, call an audible because our kids are telling us we need to. Yeah. I think what I found I struggle with is not one philosophy, but a philosophy that becomes dogmatic that says like, no, we only run this play. We we only do this play and we will do it relentlessly. Yeah. You know, and some kids will fit and some kids won't. And the kids that don't will be gone, right? And so for me, it can't be that. It has to be like, how can we learn from not just folks that agree with us, but where can we learn from our differences to say, oh, like, I never thought about that or I, I hadn't considered the play that way. Yeah. And I think that really, that's for me, reinforcing that balance. That's awesome, Tom. And and I will note that this is the first time in 117 episodes that I've been able to talk football with anybody. (laughs) (laughs) Annie, forgive us. We're talking football here. Yeah. I just, I I love that, Tom. (laughs) I feel the flexibility and the agility and the mobility that you've built into that kind of approach to every single kid is different and every play is different in in each of these situations. And it feels really good to me to hear you talk about that. So that's great. So hey, everyone, my guests today, Annie Smith and Tom Rockowitz, are the winners of the 2022 EL Education Educator Award. Annie was a kindergarten and first grade teacher at Polaris Charter School in Chicago and is now the primary instructional coach at Polaris. Tom is the New York City Public Schools Consortium Internationals and Outward Bound District Deputy Superintendent. 
Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hi, fellow educators. I'm Steve Shapiro. And like you, I'm excited about the possibilities of what school could be. Please check out my podcast, Experience Matters, where I talk to guests ranging from big national thinkers like Daniel Pink and Tony Wagner to recent high school graduates about the most profound learning experiences of their youth. Then we dig into the implications for how we can reshape schools to produce powerful breakthrough learning for all of our students. Education can take many forms, but whatever form it takes, experience matters. Hey there. Are you interested in hearing weekly conversations with authors, leaders, and practitioners at the forefront of learning and education innovation? Then you'll love the Getting Smart podcast. This podcast amplifies the incredible work being done by some of the most innovative minds in education. Learn new leadership styles, new technologies, new frameworks and mindsets, and get the fuel you need to stay motivated and curious. Together, we can empower all learners to thrive. It's available at gettingsmart.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, friends. This is Toy Hirschman from EntreEd. It is my great honor to uplift this excellent podcast, What School Could Be?, As always, we are super excited to support innovation in education. We've been lucky enough to feature some of the incredible What School Could Be educators on our podcast. If you are looking to be inspired by entrepreneurs and entrepreneurial educators and other great minds from across the world, check out the EntreEd Talk podcast and please like and subscribe and leave a review. Thanks for tuning in. Hey everyone, we are back with Annie Smith and Tom Rockowitz. So Tom, not too long ago, you were the principal at Washington Heights Expeditionary Learning School called Wheels, a New York City public school that you and I could easily do an entire episode about. So today, I want to talk about the fact that nearly 20 of your teachers nominated you for the Silver Burke Leadership Award, which ultimately led EL Education to name you, along with Annie, one of its two 2022 EL Ordies. So a two-part question here. First, your faculty said at the time that you, quote, see a leader in every teacher and that, quote, teacher-student collaboration is hugely important. And our listeners want to know how you went about discovering the leader in every teacher. And then the second part of the question is, though I imagine you walk on the humble side of the street, Tom, I wonder how it feels to carry the fact that nearly 20 of your faculty saw you as worthy of a major leadership award. So just the briefest of context. So I was a teacher at Wheels benefited, gained so much insight about my classroom practice, but also uh, who I was as a human through some of the teacher leadership structures that existed there. Mm. And then when I became principal, I felt so completely inadequate to lead a school that was, you know, we were growing our elementary grades, which the youngest I'd ever taught was fifth grade. And we had, you know, a six through 12 already present. So we were about to have 14 grade levels. And I said, well, wait, I, you know, I need to question a lot of what I've been reading about leadership. And so I really dove into, it it sounds like when you hear that, it sounds like it was a lot of relationships, which it was. Yeah. Thought about systems and structures and how do we build systems and structures where teams of teachers, you know, being a part of something larger than yourself are working together, sharing practice, and then 
looking at their impact and saying, you know, is this what we expect of ourselves? And is this what we expect of our kids? And so really, in order to do that well, we constantly had to build the capacity of our folks. And so our instructional leadership team was constantly thinking about how are we building our own capacity and that of our teachers. Um, we were always looking for folks that wanted to step up to be grade level team leaders, mm. coaches, mentors. And then I'd say the the other piece that I think really pushed me in my own practice was thinking about this idea of collective efficacy. Mm. This idea that, you know, when teams of teachers believe that they can move the needle for kids, you know, and I, I love research. It's the number one factor, according to John Hattie. Yeah. It's the number one factor that moves kids. It has the greatest impact more than all these other things that I think in education we sometimes talk about as why we can or cannot or why kids can or cannot. Mm. And so when I saw that research and when I, I dug into that a little bit further, that became sort of like, I guess, what was on, you know, what was always written on what I was trying to do, written on my heart, maybe, was trying to figure out how we can get folks to work together and believe in each other's collaboration as the key mover for our kids. Mm. And so, Tom, how does it feel to carry that fact that your faculty saw you as worthy of mm. a major leadership award? I don't know if you caught Josh, I was trying to dodge that one. <laughs> I know you were. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I was so overwhelmed at the time. We just had the EL National Conference this past weekend. Mm-hmm. I got to introduce this year's winner mm-hmm. and it brought all of those feelings back of just how lucky I was, how how humbled I was to be a part of something that the recognition should, it should have been all my APs up there. It should have been the ILT. Yeah. It should have been so many folks up there. And so really that's how I wrapped my head around it, I guess. Like I couldn't accept it until I said like, I'm accepting this on behalf of wheels Yeah, and all the mentors that kind of got me through years one, two, three, all the way up, you know, like all the folks were on stage with me as well, accepting the award. So that's, that's kind of how I got through it, but I'm still yeah. overwhelmed by it. Yeah, that's awesome, Tom. I, I love the idea that what EL does is, you know, they have the previous year's awardees introduce the current year. And that that's just a really nice thing that kind of centers you in that moment. That happened to me one time, and I remember how it felt to introduce mm. the next winner, right? And you're like, oh, I'm passing a baton on to somebody else, you know, yes. and that that's, right. a, that's a nice feeling. Yeah, that's great. So Annie, in the nomination papers filed by your colleagues that ultimately influenced EL Education to name you as its 2022 Educator Awardee, your colleagues wrote two things that really jumped out at me. The first does not lead to a question, but I'm going to read the words into the record here. So quote, Annie Smith is a North Star of what empowering education can look, sound, and feel like, end quote. So to be called a North Star Annie is pretty darn special and inspiring. The second thing they wrote is the following, quote, by the end of the year, Annie fosters a positive self-identity for every crew member and ensures all students can see themselves as a scientist, engineer, teacher, athlete, lawyer, doctor, politician, activist, and so much more, end quote. So I need to point out here that we are talking about younger kiddos, not high school students. So Annie, what does it mean, for example, to empower a young learner to be? And I'm like literally almost shouting those words there in all caps, to be an athlete or to be an engineer or to be a mathematician. Like what is the beautiful 
slow process of becoming? And how do you coach content delivery educators to enter into the very different pedagogical process, guiding them to develop the pedagogy of becoming or helping students to become? Like you said, I think it's a process. One of the things that EL education really puts a lot of emphasis on, as well as my school, is character education. And every day there's time set aside for us to really, we call it crew, to become crew, to become a family, to get to know one another, to get to trust one another. And I think that that is kind of the starting point. We Mm. start by really just getting to know one another, what we're good at, what we're bad at, our fears, our likes, our dislikes. And in that time too, students are exposed to the idea that they are important, that their ideas matter, Mm. that I'm not there to just stand and tell them what to do all the time. I know everything, you know nothing, I'm going to give you the information, but you're going to learn from me and I'm also going to learn from you. So kind of once that foundation is built, it's when we get to do some of the fun projects and things that really start empowering kids and teaching kids to see themselves in a different light. I think teaching directly from curriculum is pretty boring. It's not exciting for me. It's not exciting for the kids. So I really enjoy designing my own projects, not me designing, but designing projects with the students. And when they feel like their voice is heard and their voice is important, I think that's when the idea of becoming something more kind of starts, like that seed is planted in them. Mm. Ooh, I could be an architect if I'm designing this building in the block center. Oh, I could be a painter. Wow, I worked really hard. Look at this beautiful piece I'm producing. Mm. I feel like our job, especially as primary educators, is to plant that seed, to let them start seeing themselves in a way they haven't. Because when you're only at home with your family all the time, you see yourself at home as the youngest kid, the oldest kid, that sort of thing. But at school, you get to become who or start to become who you will be as you get older. Mm. So Annie, this is the perfect moment to talk about a project that you shared with me called the Vero Beach Project. Well, actually, that wasn't its name. Let's call it the Vacant Room Design Project. This one was a knockout, Annie. I literally almost fell out of my chair when I was reading this. It's like so brilliant. So briefly, Annie, what, what was the vacant room design project at Vero Beach? And in what ways is it connected to this idea of opening or exposing the kids to the concept that you could, you could be almost anything? So the project started because there was this strange empty room connected to our library at Vero Beach Elementary School. Mm -hmm. At this time, I was a second grade teacher and I was actually co-teaching with another teacher. So we had about 40, 45 students, second grade students in our class. And we decided, let's come up with this question. What can we do with this space? Mm. We had some parameters. We wanted them to use data, school data from the standardized tests from the year before. So something that would actually help our environment. So the students looked at the school data and they're like, oh, wow, our reading scores are really bad. Maybe if we create a space where kids can read and enjoy reading, it might help our school data. So they came up with that on their own. Of course, that's what we wanted them to come up with, but they came up with that on their own. There was no (laughs) coercing on our point. Yeah, it always happens that way, yeah. 
So then from that, we gave the students articles on color and how color can influence student behavior. Mm. We gave them articles on scents and smells and how those can influence student behavior. And they got to design their own rooms. They chose the color and they had to have evidence. They chose any scents or smells they wanted in there. They chose the furniture. They Mm. had a budget. They had to use a spreadsheet and stay within their budget to um, buy the furniture that was needed for the room. And then they had to come up with a presentation, a group presentation to present their ideas to an actual audience. Mm. We worked with interior designers to help the kids. We were able to teach so much through that. The reading skills, the math skills, adding and subtracting, staying within a budget, and then presentation skills. These second graders came to school dressed in their best dresses, suits, and presented, you would have thought that they were high schoolers with how well they presented. And this project, man, it probably lasted four or five months long. Yeah. But the students were so incredibly engaged the whole time, and mm. they learned so much. <laughs> wow. Wow, Annie, that's just a flat-out wow story. That's just amazing. I, I had a very brief experience with a principal of a very large middle school here in Honolulu, where I'm based. She had a vacant room as well, but it was her whole library and nobody was going to it. And so (laughs) working together, we came up with the idea that she would develop a design team of middle school students that would help her redesign what the library was going to be used for. And it was a very similar thing. The kids just went to town with ideas. And in the end, they created maybe what I would see as a 21st century library space, which is just like a magnet to the rest of the school, Annie. It was like amazing. All of a sudden, the kids are pouring into the quote-unquote library, you know? (laughs) So that's just an awesome story. So perfect, again, segue. Tom, you have several big meta 30,000-foot questions on your mind these days. And One of them has to do with explicit or direct instruction, which has earned a bit of a bad reputation amongst the deeper learning communities. And so when, Tom, is the right time for direct instruction? When is it the right tool to use on the way to deeper learning and skill building and human development? What are you thinking about in terms of direct instruction these days? Yeah, it's an essential question. So I'll I'll share how I'm thinking about it, I guess, but in ways attempting to answer. And just to build on what I heard Annie share, that within authentic, relevant projects, there are still embedded skills that, you know, her projects were going toward, right? And so I think I've been thinking a lot about after you engage students, because I think sometimes we start with, you know, these are the course objectives, which like, sort of like starting with vegetables, right? Like, And I think sometimes we look at explicit instruction at best as sort of like the skills or the vegetables and like, oh, you know, like we we have to do this at some point. Mm -hmm. And it often feels like the most people almost revert sometimes to I think the most traditional methods of teaching when they're teaching these explicit skills. Yeah. But I think to the earlier piece about plays, like our students frequently tell us that whether it's reading, whether it's writing, whether it's math, that 
there are some significant benefits to explicit skill building. And for some students who have some gaps in their academic career, they need that. And so I think especially about writing, you know, a lot of times, so I'm part of a district that is project-based. Students do a lot of writing. And I sometimes think about how important it is for teachers to share a model Mm. and really look at the model first before expecting students to go to explicitly do a think aloud, right? And it doesn't have to be all vegetables. It doesn't have to be like, okay, let's, you know, it's, it's almost like folks almost move their kids back into rows for these components. And it's like, no, like, please don't do that. <laughs> like you did all this great work to build a community of learners. And this is now a very targeted piece addressing mm-hmm. a need that you're seeing based on the student work. And so it, it doesn't have to be some external piece. It doesn't always have to, I think, you know, you're right. A lot of times folks in project-based learning sometimes are working to figure out where to integrate those pieces. Yeah. And I think they're necessary. And so I don't think there's a right answer, but those plays definitely have to be run in the course of a project. Yeah, I can imagine, Tom, that like in Annie's vacant room project, at a particular time that everybody sort of senses together, maybe Annie and her colleagues bring in an architect to do you know, a short talk on the historical elements of design. And that's direct instruction. And wow, it would land completely differently in, a, in that, if that's the right play at the right moment, then we're talking touchdown, right? Right, right. And, and you know, I think sometimes, I've heard this from a few different folks that I think sometimes we're trying to administer the, the Tylenol without kids really like knowing the headache. Right. Yeah. And so if engaging students in, you know, self and peer assessment, a lot of times you can say, all right, like we're all needing to work on this piece right now. And so, you know, we're going to pause and say, like, how do we, you know, I've noticed our evidence isn't what it needs to be right now to support the awesome claims we're making. Yeah. Let's pause and look at some examples of your classmates and how they're doing that. Or let's pause and look at, you know, one way that I thought about it. Again, some of that, those pauses for some explicit skill building, then make the projects better. They can make the projects more complex. And then kids can further develop the long-term visions of themselves because they have the confidence that, yeah, I just did this awesome presentation. or I wrote this great paper. or I did this great piece. And it was really good. Yeah. Wow. That's awesome, Tom. So, Annie, I asked you if you have any big meta questions on your mind, and boy, oh boy, you sure do. So <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to read them verbatim here. So, quote, oh, wow. <laughs> is the work I do enough to change the trajectory of my students' lives? Is it enough to change communities? How will I know? How can I do more? What more can I do? How can I influence adults and not just my students? How do I measure success? End quote. Whew, boy. So, Annie, you were asking these questions because of what you know about the lives of your students in Chicago. So, if you were to boil this all down to its essence, what is the struggle going on in your head and your heart, Annie, as evidenced by these really epic and essential questions? So our school, Polaris Charter Academy, is on the west side of Chicago, and it's in a really tough neighborhood. There's lots and lots and lots of gun violence, gangs, drugs, things like that affect our kids, not sometimes, but really daily. Mm -hmm. A lot of kids will come to school wearing buttons of their family members who have been killed. I've been invited to many um, funerals, and then even sadly, 
at our school, emails will come through of former students that attended our school that have been affected or killed by gun violence. Mm. And that's not okay. It's not okay. And I just, I always think about these kids that I teach, they're only five or six years old, but what can I do that let them know that that is not the life that they have to live? That is not something that they need to be a part of. That's not normal. It's not okay. But without being... I know better than you. You know what I mean? I don't want to come across as I'm better than you or I know a better life, but I don't want that for them. So I spend so much of my time giving students the opportunity to think for themselves, to challenge things that I say that other people say, hoping that I give them this like power, this innate ability to say, no, that's not what I want for myself. I'm not going to take a part of that. Mm but the kids are five and six. So there's many, many years after. So I just struggle with like, who are they going to be when they're 18, when they're 20, when they're 25? Are they going to be okay? Mm. You know, Annie, there is a, I have a a colleague and a friend, a professor at Drexel University in Philly, John Gould, love the guy. He introduced me to a book by Carol Sanford called No More Gold Stars. And the the central tenet of the book, which is really kind of turning my life upside down right now, is that what we need to do as educators is really focus on helping kids to think for themselves. And that is not a light thing at all. And what you're talking about there is that when you truly have the ability to think for yourself, you can make choices for yourself so that you don't have to follow particular pathways, right? Is that kind of a fair way of how you're yeah. thinking about it. Yes, that's exactly it. I, I want kids to challenge literally everything that is said to them. I want them to argue with me. I I want them to, yeah, have that ability to, to analyze the situation and decide if that's something they want to take part in or no and not give into the peer pressure and things like that around them. Mm. So Tom, I'm actually going to, before we go to break, I'm going to come with come back with a follow-up question for you based on what Annie was just talking about. So Annie's, you know, at the elementary school level, how do we how do we keep that process that Annie is building at her level going through middle and into high school and beyond? And oof boy, I know that's a hard one. It's a big question. That's what we're all talking about, right? What do you think? Yeah, I did see this, you know, as students get older, you know, we had a pre-K through 12, and as students got older, somehow school became different and often assumed they didn't have things to share and needed to be taught things first in order to then be able to share or then be able to do. And I think it's really flipping that. I I think, you know, we expect kindergartners to engage with the world and to share their perspectives and bring their full selves. And it should be no different in sixth or ninth or 12th grade, right? I think we can locate a lot of the necessary skills, a lot of the necessary projects and really just think about preparing our students for the future in things that they're interested in, right? And so I think sometimes we almost manufacture perseverance. Mm. We almost say like, oh, we have to give the students really boring work because they're going to have boring work one day or they're going to have boring work in college. And so we got to get them used to doing boring work now. And, you know, it's always funny to me because there are so many things in the world to persevere through that our students are already persevering in order to get in the door every day. Yeah. That this idea that we need to manufacture things so that they can then see, you know, it's just, I think there's so much more value in finding projects that engage them, that assume they know something and want to know more 
and then push them to learn a whole lot more and then reflect on all the perseverance they had along the way. Yeah, yeah. That's a great point to go into our second break, Tom. Thank you. So, hey, everyone. My guests today, Annie Smith and Tom Rockowitz, are the winners of the 2022 EL Education Educator Award. Stay with us. We will be right back. This is Guy Kawasaki. If you want to learn how to be a remarkable person, please check out my podcast, Remarkable People. I interview people like Roy Yamaguchi, Margaret Atwood, Jane Goodall, Stephen Wolfram, Stephen Pinker, Ariana Huffington, and Steve Wozniak. The point of the podcast is to help you become a little bit more remarkable. To learn more, go to remarkablepeople.com. Thank you. Aloha, my name is Aaron Shorn, a previous guest on this very podcast. I am also now head of growth and community at Hawaii's own Unruler. Unruler is a collaborative mobile and web platform that accelerates innovation, grows culture and community, and celebrates learning. Learners post multimedia, tag their learning, and through comments are able to work together asynchronously. Each post is a moment of learning that forms the foundation of a joyous learning journey. We can be found at unrulr.com. Mahalo. Are you ready to shake things up in the classroom? Then get ready to blast off into the future of education with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Join Joe DiPaolo and Ron Nober as they share their own experiences, as well as talk with guests who are experts and innovators in education. From engaging teaching techniques to the latest educational technology, this podcast is a must-listen for anyone passionate about the future of learning. Subscribe and get ready to learn with the Teacher Nerds podcast. Everyone, we are back with Annie Smith, a North Star of what empowering education can look and sound and feel like, and Tom Rockowitz, who, according to his colleagues, does not just talk the talk, he walks the walk. So Tom, there is a wonderful four-minute video at EL Education's website that features one of my superheroes, Ron Berger, and he's talking about an educational concept he calls, and EL Education calls, quote, learning that lasts. So I suppose mm. this can also be called deeper learning. And in your current position as a deputy superintendent in the New York City Public Schools, what is your role and your process for moving this idea of learning that lasts forward? Like what tools are required in an educator's toolbox if they are going to be a deeper learning, learning that lasts teacher leader? Mm. I think about a few things, I think. One, I mean, obviously, Ron is one of my heroes as well. And so I pull a lot from my experience as a teacher and, and leader in EL education, New York City Outward Bound. And so I, I think, you know, setting these exemplars almost of not just aspirations, but then also seeing some of the high quality work and then using that to say, okay, like, which of these parts resonate and how are you working towards this mm. in your school? I think, you know, a lot of times, as much as we try, education also is, often has silos, right? Classrooms, you know, often a teacher can go in and still close the door. And I think sometimes school buildings are the same way. Yeah. And so what we've been trying to do a lot of, you know, our district has always prioritized principals learning from other principals. Mm. He's learning from other APs. 
And so thinking through how do we do that enough of a structured way so that folks are wrestling with the same problems of practice mm-hmm. so that when you're trying different things, you can compare notes and say, okay, you know, we're, we're both looking at tier one reading instruction in our core classrooms, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so how do we build shared practice? How are you trying that? How am I trying that? When folks are wrestling together with a problem of practice, we found that, you know, those conversations are a lot more fruitful. Mm-hmm. They push each other a lot more. There are a lot more takeaways and and folks can challenge each other a little bit more than sometimes if everyone's sort of gathering together and sharing what they're trying. You know, folks are, are often very nice to each other. We're very respectful and we, we know everyone's working really hard. And so again, thinking about the structures and systems we put into place so that folks are having really meaningful conversations, looking at examples and really reflecting on here's what we aspire to, mm-hmm. where are we seeing that now? Can we push where we're not? You know, Tom, I'm just that's just so interesting. And I'm I'm thinking, let's say we fast forward another year and you're you're having a, a hypothetical two-year evaluation of your work and the evaluator me says, you know, Tom, what I'm seeing in, in your district is that superintendents are learning from superintendents, educators are learning from educators, students are learning from students, and it really appears that all of that learning that's happening amongst those communities is is really lasting in a way. What a marvelous thing that would be, right? Mm, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> And it really reflects a sort of respect for the level that you reach. Like, okay, now I'm at the superintendent level. Obviously, I want to stay connected with everybody up and down. Don't even want to use the words up and down because that suggests something that, you know, isn't really true. But in whatever sector of the education community you're in, I'm staying connected. But at the same time, I'm also learning a lot now from my fellow superintendents, right? I mean, isn't that something that you're thinking a lot about right now? Yeah. And I think the additional piece is how do we know? Yeah. Right. And I think I very much value feedback and very much value surveys and know that they're one part of knowing how we're doing. Right. Mm. And so if we're only asking our learners, hey, you know, how was this project you just did? How'd it go? Did you learn a lot? That's super valuable and necessary. And most folks wouldn't stop there. You'd also still want to see the presentation, right? You still want to see the exhibition of the student work to Annie's point. Like you'd want to see the project. What does the room design look like, Mm. right? And how do we assess that on a rubric? And are the scores on the rubric better today than they were two years ago? Yeah. Are teachers growing and how do we know? Are principals growing and how do we know? And so I think sometimes this balance, you can definitely take data too far. You can definitely, you can, there are limits. And I think, that's why really being thoughtful about multiple ways of knowing. Yeah. And then it's, then it's a rich conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Wow, Tom. So that's like literally the perfect segue to my next question for Annie. So Annie, I'm going to do the impossible and triangulate four things that came up in my research. So first, your 2022 EL Education Educator Award acceptance speech where you spoke beautifully about something you called the perfect learning environment, which we've already talked about in terms of what was happening in Qatar way back at the beginning of your teaching career. Second, the David Grant shot edited an extremely famous film, Austin's Butterfly, which is one of your favorites and certainly mine. And third, David Grant's short and wonderful EL education films that capture 
your pedagogical approach to teaching math, and finally, fourth, your professional learning style, which is to learn by reading and watching, to use your words, in small bites and bits. <laughs> so I want you to walk our listeners into a hypothetical perfect learning environment specifically for math at any K-12 level. Let's call this a What School Could Be podcast site visit, and your visitors, mostly math teachers, are on a journey where their destination is a North Star concept called the perfect learning environment. And so David Grant will capture all of this on film, <laughs> hypothetically. And so the door opens, and the first thing Annie Smith wants us to notice is, and then take us further into the room. Okay, so the perfect learning environment, especially for math, is one where students are empowered to be doing the math thinking for themselves. So as you walked in the classroom, you'll see students busy at work. They might have manipulatives in hands. They might be drawing pictures to help them solve problems. The teacher would not be telling students how to solve a math problem but the teacher would be questioning students. What are mm. you thinking? What do you see? Why are you thinking that? After students have had ample time grappling and trying to figure out the math problem, there would be students who then would get to select their work to share. Mm. The share would be time where students get to see another student's math thinking. Mm. Within that, the students who are not sharing would get to analyze the student work, which kind of comes in with the Austin's butterfly. They'd yeah. be giving feedback. They'd be asking questions to get to clarify learning about somebody else's thinking and then interjecting their own thinking in there. Discussing and talking, I think, is really, really important for mm. when students are learning anything, especially math, but definitely learning anything. The teacher's role in this would not be of instructor, but more questioner, asking the questions to get the kids and to empower kids to do thinking on their own. Mm. Wow, Annie, it, it happens in every episode, it seems like. There is this one particular moment where Josh wants to go back to school. <laughs> you know, Annie, my experience in math all the way up and down the line, K through 12, was just miserable. And I've talked about it at length in other episodes and what you're describing there just sounds like such an inclusive environment. And I know that can be a, a buzzword these days, but almost immediately as a learner, I feel like I can make a contribution to figuring out what the math problem is, since that's the way that we're starting. We're not starting with, there's a bunch of correct answers, and, and I'm going to give them to you, and then you, you're going to apply them, right? This is a very different kind of culture that's happening, that we're looking at together, right? For sure. And it takes kids, even kindergartners and first graders, it takes them a long time to kind of switch their thinking mm. because they're so used to being right. I want to be right. I want to get the right answer. Yeah. But when they realize it's not about getting the right answer, it's about showing my thinking and my teacher really, really cares about what I'm thinking, not if I get it right. That's when like the crazy learning happens and you see so much academic growth in them and yeah. also just personal growth too. Look at what I'm capable of. Nobody showed me how to do this. I figured it out. Mm. My teacher thinks I'm valuable and my classmates also think that my thinking is valuable. Wow, that's awesome. So thinking for myself in the context of math or whatever it is, right? It could be whatever. a it yeah, could be exactly. a, a multidimensional interdisciplinary project for sure.
So Tom, that's a perfect segue then to my question to you, which is in advance of today, I asked you about any crazy awesome moments you might want to share in your teaching practice. And what you told me really moved me, Tom, in part because you are now out of the classroom, out of your principal role, and now working as a deputy superintendent. So what are the crazy awesome things you miss about being in the thick of it on a school's campus, either as a teacher or a principal? Like, you know, and this would be a good moment to talk about some of your former students and a shark tank, I think. Yeah, so I I think that's the first and foremost piece is that I miss the relationships with kids. You know, I, I still get to be in schools and see a lot of kids, but knowing kids deeply, being able to sort of hold up a mirror and say, like, where are you proud right now? And and where do you want to push? Yeah. I miss those those daily interactions, especially when I was a teacher and knowing students at that that level. And then I miss the piece that, you know, hearing you and Annie talk about some of the projects she's done, mm. you know, I miss being in the classroom. I still miss it, you know, years later. You know, and I, I think that that Shark Tank and Business Plan project was sort of the, I don't know, epitome of my practice, maybe, mm-hmm. mostly because, and I think this played a large role, know a lot of economics, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. We would hit a point very early on in the semester where I'd say, okay, you know, because the entire semester was, you know, I'd sprinkle in some micro and macroeconomics, but students were mostly, you know, researching markets and figuring out where they wanted to open, you know, anything from a sandwich shop to, you know, wireless chargers and everything else in between. And then they would work with experts throughout and then they'd present to a shark tank. We'd have connections with entrepreneurs that would come in and be judges. Yeah. But very early on in the semester, I'd say, well, we've now hit the point where you're going to know more about your work than I do. Yeah. And so to Annie's previous point, now I just ask questions. Right. And now I'm just, I'm relying on some microeconomic and macroeconomic principles, but really I'm just trying to ask you the best questions I can because that's what I'm contributing at this point. You know, and I might support some reading skills or writing skills, but ultimately you now know your business way better than I do. And I'm learning alongside you how to make your business and your pitch the best it can be. And so that piece of exploring with kids together, how to pursue high quality work and push each other along the way. Yeah, I miss it all the time. You know, Tom, way back when I was, again, teaching at this small all-girls school, they told me to teach economics one year. And I was like, I've never, I don't even, it's the dismal science. It's called the dismal science for a reason. And I didn't really want to teach it. So I threw out the curriculum completely, just chucked it, and went with a series of really kind of wicked hypotheticals that the kids had to, simulations the kids had to go through that just involved a boatload of money, every one of them. And they just had to make decisions. So they had to make these economic decisions, these money, these financial decisions. And that's the part that I really miss now, you know, because I'm not in the classroom anymore and, you know, doing this work for what school could be in the podcast. I miss those opportunities to collaborate with kids on what it means to actually live in the real world, even if you're doing it in school, in a simulation that feels real. And so, yeah, that's great, Tom. I I can definitely feel what you're feeling right now in terms of wanting. And I know that what you're going to do is as much as possible as you walk the walk, you're going to stay connected with those individuals, the educators up and down the line as much as possible, right? So that's great. So Annie, last formal question before we bring this awesome conversation to a close. So at Polaris, 
Charter Academy, you were a kindergarten and first grade teacher, and now you are something called a primary instructional coach, specifically meaning you coach five, I think, primary teachers in standards-based instruction in mathematics and literacy. So just a quick two-part question here, and I apologize because the second one is one of those kind of ginormous questions. So first, what does it mean to be a primary instructional coach? And second, in what ways are you already, with each passing day, kind of gaining a greater understanding of what good coaching looks and sounds and feels like? So a primary instructional coach, obviously this position is new to me, but I'm excited for it. I'm actually only in the school two days a week. Mm -hmm. So one day I try to spend math coaching and one day I try to spend with the literacy coaching. And the view I have is teaching is a really, really, really hard job. There are so many, so many balls that you are constantly juggling. So as a coach, my job is to help make teachers more effective, but also help make their jobs easier. Mm. So I do a lot of observation and give feedback to teachers about how, oh, you could simplify by doing it this way, or that was awesome, but if you did this instead. So kind of just simple teacher moves to help them make their jobs more effective. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of support with planning. Let's look at these standards. What do you really want your students to learn? Do you have to do day one, day two, day three from this curriculum? Or can we create something more engaging that's going to make your job easier, teaching more exciting, the students more engaged, and really get the students to learn the concepts that you're hoping for them to learn by the end of whatever deadline you're on there? Mm. Yeah, and, and even at this early stage, you're starting to understand kind of what coaching is and what it feels exactly. and sounds and, and looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And what teachers need. Mm. So I don't want to be someone that's telling them that they need something when they don't actually feel that they need that. I want to be helpful to them. So building those relationships, having those conversations, and kind of just being an extra member on the team to help with all those things that I was talking about. How do you do that, Annie? How do you figure out the, you know, that part, which is like, <laughs> I think the teacher needs this, but it may turn out that that's not at all true. Like, how do you, how do you work through that? That's something I'm still trying to figure out, but there was a book I was reading about student-led coaching. So not starting with just looking at the teacher, but looking at student data, student information, and what the students need. So I feel like if you walk in and you tell a teacher, you're doing this wrong, you're doing this wrong, you got to do this better, it kind of builds a wall between you and the teacher that you're working with. But if you're actually looking at the students and what they need, that's kind of a good way to build that relationship and then work together as a team to get the students there. So your students' reading scores aren't so great or your students are really struggling with reading. What can we do to build those skills together? And then that gives you kind of like a launch pad from there to help empower those teachers. Wow, that's so amazing. So Tom, it seems like what Annie is doing is figuring out like what is the right play in the right moment. Doesn't it sound like that? (laughs) Absolutely. And and what do the students need and what does this teacher need to, you know, get 1% better tomorrow, right? Right. And I think the operative question, Annie, that you're asking is, it's not you haven't determined what that need is in your mind. What you're asking of everybody, both teachers and learners, is what do you need in this moment? Let them express it, right? Exactly. That's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so here at the end, Tom, I love to end episodes by giving guests opportunities to do shout-outs to giants upon whose shoulders they stand. And in your case, you have quite a list 
of coaches, guides, mentors, and advisors. And I want to focus on just two. So who are Aurora Kushner and Peter McFarlane? And in what ways did they help you become most likely to succeed as a school leader? Like in what ways, Tom, do you carry them with you in your teacher satchel day in and day out? Like in what ways have these two giants in your life contributed to the legacy you want to leave for your family, your community, and, you know, for the living world? So they've both been with me throughout my time as a principal and now on a district team. And I think they're both very similar. One, I think, is really asking, what are the outcomes we're working toward and where are we now, Mm. right? And really reducing it. I think a lot of times, you know, we get caught up in a whole lot of things. And really it's like, what are we, what are we working towards and where are we? Right. And then how do we get better? Right. And I think both of them were gentle, but firm with me as, as a school leader, you know, working my own practice and were always asset based, but clear, you know, with me and with my school and saying like, okay, you know, like we know you've done a lot to put these pieces in place and it either is or is not where you want it to be right now. And so what's next? Mm. And so really working Side by side, they both, Aurora was our school coach and Dr. McFarlane was a mentor. And, you know, both just, again, the asset-based approach, but the relentless questioning of, are you where you want to be yet? And if not, what's next? Mm. Really keeping me focused, keeping me disciplined. You know, I have a habit of sometimes finding like shiny new things, (laughs) you know, and and Mm. really wanting, oh, I saw this at this great school I went to visit. Let's do that. And, you know, they they also supported me with a lot of discipline to say, here's what your school community has said. Here's what you said. Let's do that first. And let's do that really well before we add on the shiny new thing. Yeah. Love that, Tom. And it feels like as you're embarking on this epic, almost Homeric odyssey of becoming a deputy superintendent, that you carry that with you, that idea of just asking people, what is our shared North Star and where are we now? Exactly. Yeah, just opens up the conversation and allows you to build relationship and to move forward together. So that's fantastic. So Annie, same question to you. Who is Cindy Emerson down in Vero Beach, Florida? And in what ways did she contribute to your journey as a developing educator? Like what elements of her leadership do you carry with you today in your proverbial backpack? Cindy Emerson was a principal who actually came into the elementary school once I was already working there. And she completely changed the working environment for me. Mm. The principals that were there before were extremely critical. They would come in, sit in the back of the room with the computer and type and then tell you you're doing everything all wrong. (laughs) Where she would come in and she would read books with my kids while also Mm. doing a little observation of me. She would dress up as different characters and do a read aloud or do a fun parade or just bring the joy to the classroom. She also saw things in me that I hadn't seen in myself Mm. and allowed me the freedom to be the teacher that I am today. She saw that I really, I didn't know what project-based learning really was. She saw that that was something I might be good at and sent me to the Buck Institute in California to learn more about that. Mm. I think that I carry with me like 
it's not about what I think is best, but to give people the space to become who they need to be, to give people confidence in who they are. And that's when people really grow. Being super critical, being, that doesn't work. So kind of learning about people, building relationships, bringing that joy, that's when you give your students as well as other teachers the space to like be their best selves. So I try mm. to always carry that with me. Wow, that's just, that's awesome. And so let's dedicate this episode to Aurora and Peter and Cindy and thank them for being giants in your lives, right? That's just great. You know, on the mainland, as we say here in Hawaii, they call it goosebumps. Here in Hawaii, we call it chicken skin. And Annie and Tom, as you were describing, you know, the influences of these folks, it just, it gave me chicken skin. And just what's been happening here is that we've given our listeners an opportunity, a window, if you will, into what leadership looks and sounds and feels like. So that's great. So Tom and Annie, I appreciate the both of you. Congratulations on your awards. And thank you for all you are doing to figure out what school could be. I hope you both have a wonderful holiday season. And I really look forward to getting this episode out to our listeners. Thank you so thank much, you Josh. Thank you so much. Thank you, Josh. Our editor, creative consultant, and sound engineer is the talented Evan Kurohara. Our theme music is created by a remarkable pianist, Michael Sloan. Producer of 12 albums with over 100 songs, Michael Sloan is featured in Apple Music, Spotify, and all major music platforms. You can also find his work at his YouTube channel. Michael has listeners in over 100 countries and 2,000 cities. We'd be grateful if you would support these episodes with leading-edge, innovative, and imaginative educators and students by giving us your own rating and writing a review wherever you get your podcasts. This series is sponsored by education change agent Ted Dintersmith, executive producer of the award-winning documentary film Most Likely to Succeed and author of the best-selling book What School Could Be. Please join the What School Could Be global online community by going to community.whatschoolcouldbe.org or by downloading the What School Could Be app from your favorite app store. The What School Could Be podcast is brought to you by Josh Rapoon Productions. Send your feedback to josh at whatschoolcouldbe.org and follow the show on Twitter at WSCB Podcast. Finally, listeners, one of the most important things we can do is to bring kindness and compassion into the world. For sure, we need a surplus of both right now. Thank you so much for listening.